loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Maggie, Sarah Check, and Abby Greenberg, otherwise known as the Anxiety Sisters, and authors of the Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, How You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected, and Happy. Maggie, Maggie's expertise is counseling and teaching people to find strength through community. As a social worker in a New York City high school, she specialized in the development of youth leadership, as well as counseling individuals and families. She's worked as a special education advocate, helping families to access services for their children and teens. She became a full-fledged anxiety sister in her mid-20s while dealing with debilitating anxiety attacks. Since becoming an anxiety sister, she's become the wife of an anxious husband and the mother of two anxious kids, proving that anxiety is indeed contagious. Abby Greenberg started talking at nine months old and hasn't stopped since. She's gotten two degrees in the communication field, as well as a certificate in adult education and a master's in fine arts and creative writing. In addition to her more than 25-year career as a professor, Abby served as a divorce mediator, a Myers-Briggs trainer, a motivational speaker, and a communication consultant, as well as a teacher development coordinator for several educational institutions. When she's not teaching, writing, researching, or panicking, she spends time with her anxiety sister, Maggie, her anxious husband, and her three anxious kids. Welcome, Maggie and Abby. Thank you. As, as is so evident in both of your biographies, uh, you're honest and you're humorous. And I appreciate that combination um, 100%. Um, that, uh, you know, sometimes how-to how books don't refer to the person writing them very much. And, and I think our greatest power is actually referring to ourselves and saying, yeah, I actually know this territory, right? Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that you both claim your anxiety. You're not, you're not just experts uh, offering lots of wisdom, but also people who've tried it all. So yeah, thanks like for that. Help. We like to tell people we've not only walked the walk, but we've huddled, heaved, hurled, sweated, and palpitated our way through our life. <laughs> Yes. Before we went on, I was I was uh, telling Abby that as a young person, I was horribly anxious myself. And reading the book, I went back to all those moments in my own life, uh, which which were, as I look back on it, quite grief related. You know, from moving a lot to uh, being away from family through moves uh, to being bullied, you know, all these things that were losses in my life were a big part of what um, potentized my tendency towards anxiety. Mm. And um, it feels to me like that's true of a lot of people who, who uh, have anxiety, that something helps to catalyze that experience. Would you agree with that? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, so, so many of our anxiety sisters have dealt with loss of one type or another. You know, as you said, sometimes it's, it's moves and being away from friends and family and support or, or many moves when they were children. Sometimes it's loss of important people in their lives or loss of financial stability or a career or whatever kinds of loss that they've encountered. But definitely, I think that there's often, we think that there's often something um, with grief and anxiety that's very, very connected. And of course, uh, I've, I've ref, you know, listened to your interview with Claire Bidwell-Smith, who yes. wrote a specific book about that subject, how anxiety yeah. and grief interact. And for me, I would say it was, the, it was the beginning period after my wife's illness that really forced me to deal with anxiety in, mm. at a new level, because I just couldn't keep living that way. <laughs> It was, yeah, yeah. it was just too painful to keep living at a high level of anxiety all the time. It was distracting me from everything. Um, what, what brought you each to kind of a reckoning with anxiety, if you could share? Can you, can you share something about that, Abby, first? And then, and then Maggie sure. Sure. can chime in? Now, do you mean a personal reckoning, reckoning in my own life, or did, in terms of us as as the anxiety sisters? I would say, I, let's start with, you know, a lot of people live with anxiety as which as if it's just, and I did, as if it's just part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. and then and then something kicks it into high gear often, or you notice, wait, this isn't. Okay, you know, something gets your attention to start figuring out how to cope with it. And I wonder what that was for each of you. Okay, well, I can say that I have had anxiety since I can remember, probably since I'm five years old. Um, I had obsessions and compulsions even back then, although I didn't know that's what they were. And I had a terrible stomach as a child, and I did a lot of catastrophizing. Um, But, you know, I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. And so the conversation around anxiety was not as robust and uh, certainly not as accessible for kids. So I didn't really talk about it. I just figured something was wrong with me and I didn't know what it was. I, I had no way of knowing it was anxiety. And as I got older, my anxiety worsened. Um, I had a lot of really tough experiences in high school. I, I lost a dear friend when I was 16. He was my next door neighbor and we were very close friends and he died from leukemia. And that was a very, um, a very difficult time for me. And my anxiety really spiked in response to that. But again, I didn't know it was anxiety. I just, I actually figured that I had some sort of really awful, rare stomach tumor. Mm. So, um, and that's, then, that's so familiar, the catastrophizing, right? Yes, absolutely. Instead of thinking, wow, maybe I'm really scared or anxious, it, it, it turned into something else in your mind. Oh, absolutely. And then I went to college and uh, I, thank goodness, found my anxiety sister Maggie there. Um, and I think we recognized in each other kindred panicked spirits. Um, and she was the first person that I really talked to openly about what I was feeling. And she was saying a lot of, oh, my goodness, me too. Me too. Oh, my God, I have a terrible stomach. And, you know, we, we started to really share a lot of our experiences and, and really became each other's anxiety community of two. Mm. 
And I think that it was the first time that it occurred to me when I was in college and, and, and friends with Maggie, it was the first time it occurred to me that maybe what's going on for me is something in my brain, that it may not actually be stomach or cardiac, that it's actually something going on. My brain's wonky. That's the first time it occurred to me. Mm -hmm. And then spent the next 20 years really battling my anxiety <laughs> side by side with Maggie. We, we were each other's touchstones. And I'll let Maggie share a little bit about that, about that time when she discusses her reckoning. But that's really, for me, it started in college when I started to realize that's what it was. And then it took about 20 years to figure out how to manage it. That's interesting to me because what... Um I like to think of of shame as kind of a mushroom that grows well in the in the dark, dank, and unshared. Uh, and yeah. so, um, what what pushed you out of just having it be this secret about you was finding someone else who experienced it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there was no way I was going to tell even my parents, whom I was very close with, but I wasn't going to tell them what was going through my head because I thought for sure that you know. <laughs> that, that, that they would then take me to a hospital or something. There was something really, really wrong with me. And so I kept it inside for my whole childhood. It, it, it makes me think about my grandson. He's now nine, but a couple of years ago before COVID, obviously I was visiting and his parents said, um, he's experienced, we, we believe he's experiencing some anxiety. Would you talk to him about it? And I thought that was so, I mean, I think of myself as a parent who welcomed feelings and all of that. Um, but they realized they couldn't have that conversation, but I could. Mm. And, mm. Uh, bec you know, because I'm his grandma, it's different, yeah. right? Yeah. And I was so appreciative that they welcomed that um, because they're thinking in terms of how does he manage the fact that his nervous system goes in that direction? Yeah, right. Right. He's very lucky to have a grandmother who understands because I think that when I was younger, I mean, I had a lot of very supportive people in my life, but you know, nobody really talked about mental health. We didn't talk about anxiety, didn't talk about depression, and we certainly didn't talk about anxiety and depression in kids. Yes. And there was also a grief aspect because he was afraid of people in his life dying. Mm. So, That's you know, it was all in one package at the yeah. moment. It's a very common anxiety for children. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And parents are trying to figure out, is there something wrong about this? You know, which there isn't, in my opinion. I remember thinking about that as a, as a child and having really no way to ask questions about it because no one at that point, I'm 68, no one was talking about it. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Yeah, that that sort of leads me into a lot of what I think my anxiety, where my anxiety came from. I um, grew up in a family where both my parents were only children and they both lost their same sex parent quite young. Um, so my mom lost her mother when she was about 12 and um, my mom was born in the twenties. So this was like in the early forties, 1940s. And um, she just always described to me how the day, you know, after the morning ended, um, the woman in the neighborhood came and took everything of her mother's away. They just oh, that threw it just out. breaks my heart. Oh, oh, I mean, you know, because they said to her, you know, we don't, we sort of don't want you to dwell on it. We don't want you to think about it. We want you to move on. 
which of course did the exact opposite, had the exact opposite effect. Um, and so I think my mom really carried the grief with her um, for her whole life. She really, you know, and then she married my dad, who was a lovely person, but who um, became ill very, very young and, you know, had a chronic illness that was very, a couple of chronic illnesses that were very, very severe and difficult. And so that just, all that grief that she had suppressed started to come up around my father's illness um, and his hospitalizations and all the trauma that brought. And so um, I think that I, I grew up in a, in a house that was full of anxiety. You know, a friend of mine, her mom one time said to me, it's in the air that you breathe in your house mm. um, because there was a sense of such intense abandonment by, you know, both my parents had that. But, you know, with their same sex parent and they were only children. So it was it was an intense situation then to be dealing with an, an illness, with a chronic illness um, and ultimately, you know, a death. So I think that no. I, I really embodied that because I, I was the child that, um, you know, everything sort of seeped into me, I would say. I was very aware and sensitive of my parents' feelings. Um, and and I started to get panic attacks and then phobias about six months after my father died. I think I'd always been an anxious child before that and an anxious teenager. But like you said, there came a point where the anxiety just took over, where I where it was clear that I could not go on <laughs> like this. You know, that's familiar to me, too, uh, in two regards. One, um, childhood grief getting stowed. And I, I have to say, I can't remember a client who's come to me um, saying, oh, my, my family handled that loss so well. Yeah. Um, everyone always comes with, they didn't let me talk about them. They, you know, <laughs> it's, the, yeah. it's, the, it's the shutdown experience, isn't it? And it so. Is. Um, that was your mom's experience transposed to you. And then the second part that's so familiar to me is um, panic, you know, anxiety becoming panic and um, phobias after a death. I've, I've yes. worked with lots of clients who have had that mm -hmm. experience too. Yes, we've had so many people in our Anxiety Sisters community talk about that. Um, and uh, like you said, we... We talked to Clara Bidwell-Smith and have read her books, but even before we met her, um, Abby and I often talked about how um, anxiety was the missing phase of grief, you know, which is her book, which, you know, we totally right. agree with her. You know, anxiety is in, is in such a deep part of grief in all the different phases and all the different stages of grief. Anxiety is so much a part of it. And, and um, I, of course, after my father died, I didn't really put two and two together for a long time. Um, and so Abby was referring to before, you know, both of us for our 20s. And, and um, we always call them the decade of the is because we knew that we didn't feel well. And we knew that 
you know, we, we were starting to get scared about things or for Abby starting to have more compulsions and uh, obsessions and compulsions, but we really didn't have a name for what was going on. So we started seeing the neurologist and the cardiologist and the acupuncturist and the therapist and the psychiatrist and <laughs> the past <laughs> life regressionist. Don't forget the hypnotist. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are so yeah. many people you could see about it, but it doesn't mean that anyone's going to say um, the word anxiety. It doesn't necessarily lead to that, does it? it? It doesn't necessarily lead to that. I mean, some people did say the word anxiety, but it was so hard to believe how much um, anxiety how much damage anxiety can do in, in our, you know, in terms of how we felt and how we were able to go about, you know, our, be in the world, I would say. And so it was hard to believe. So I kept thinking, you know, do I have, do I have a stomach disease? Do I have heart disease? Like this can't be in my head as I thought at the time. Well, also, you know, the medical community itself, if you say a phrase like in my head, that means you're making it up. Yes, exactly. I think there's I think there's still that problem, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yes. Instead of in my head, like the brain's in control of everything. Exactly. <laughs> if, if it's in your head, it's going to go everywhere. Right. <laughs> right. And we we did not understand how that process could work. So that's why both of us together and separately just spent time and money and effort running around trying to find quote unquote a cure or something that someone had missed. Um, and, and a lot of why we form, wrote this book and formed our community was because we realized that we didn't have the language to explain what was happening for us to us. And we didn't want other people not to have that language. Like we, we wanted to put out in the world, like, this is how it feels. And this is what happens. And, um, and this is, this is anxiety. Yes. You know, and this is, and this is what our brains can do. Um, And so that became very important to us in terms of our mission. Of, of destigmatizing and demystifying the experience of anxiety. And also what one thing I very much appreciate about your book, and we're not, we're about to go to a break, but we'll talk about this more when we get back is that um, having your brain uh, tend to anxiety does not rule out a happy life. That, Absolutely. That actually the two can go together. I know that's true in my experience. Um, and it's what what does seem to diminish happiness is being in resistance. <laughs> that mm-hmm. seems to diminish my happiness a lot if I'm in resistance to something. Of course, I have had so many examples of that with clients in the last couple of years in COVID. You know, um, huge resistance to our own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that my clients have had. So let's let's talk about that more when we get back. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Um, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, I have an Instagram account, et cetera, et cetera. And to find Maggie and Abby, go to anxietysisters.com. Be back soon. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Maggie Sarachek and Abby Greenberg about their newly released book, The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. And before the break, uh, Maggie and Abby, we were talking about how much of the, the um, what do I want to say, the unmanageable aspects of anxiety have to do with resisting anxiety. And I, I would actually say that's true of all different kinds of emotional experiences that what we can't be with plagues. And I have so many clients who come in grief and say, Oh, make this go away. I don't want to feel Mm -hmm. this way. And I'm thinking they're, they're actually experiencing their resistance to the feeling, not so much the feeling. Is that right. your understanding as well? Absolutely. A hundred percent. We spend an, an enormous amount of time trying to help people have an acceptance of their anxiety as part of who they are as people. And we, we talk about how to live anxiously happy. And Maggie and I are, are proof that you can thrive with anxiety. You don't have to get rid of it out of your life in order to live well. So we 100% agree. We always quote uh, the, the mantra that's, you know, it's everywhere. Um, what you resist persists. Absolutely. I was, I was saying before we went on that um, I, I hesitate to say it this way, but a shorthand would be that my wife's illness, death, and my grief cured me of anxiety. But it's not quite that. It, it uh, removed my resistance Right. Over right. time, my resistance went away. And so I, I got very good at just saying, oh, fear. Oh, anger. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, just <laughs> taking note, letting it come in, 
having it, letting it go out, you know, it life became more fluid for me in that time because I just uh, I just couldn't do what I was trying to do at that high level of anxiety anymore. And and as I told you, I was a, such an anxious person, agoraphobic, uh, you know, social phobic, all kinds of things before that time. Yeah, we always we say to people often that um, I. I think that we have this whole thing of positive, we think we have this whole thing of positive emotions and negative emotions, right? You're supposed to feel happy and joyful and excited. And on the negative is anxiety and anger and sadness. And it's just such a ridiculous way to to, um, understand emotion because we all have all of those things. And, And the thing about how we feel is that it comes and goes. Um, I, I think that I always felt that very strong emotions would swallow me whole. Mm. Um, and in learning to accept my anxiety, I learned that, you know what, that my life is going to be full of different emotions at different times and they're going to come and they're going to go. And whether that's happiness or whether that's anxiety. Those things are all sort of part of the picture. That, that um, leads me to, to a certain thought, which is that um, there, there's some way that you have to change the rules on, on your life expectation. Uh, because I, I also have a lot of people say, if, if someone, if anyone can die at any time, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I'm dealing with grief so much. If, you know, someone dies and they say, I didn't know anyone can die at any time, you know, anxious, anxious, anxious. But there is something beyond that, which is given that those are the terms of living, how do I embrace life? Mm-hmm. And, and you can get to that, can't, can't you? Uh, it, it appears yeah. to me from the book, like you've both uh, uh, gotten there, you know, yes, all kinds of different experiences come with living and, uh, and we're hardwired to be able to do those things. Right. Absolutely. We are, we are hardwired for resilience and we often forget that. You know, we, we, we often don't think, like as Mag said, that she think she used to believe that her strong emotions could swallow her whole. I think you know, that's something that many of us are afraid of, that, oh, this is going to be too much. I won't be able to handle it. But here's the thing, you will. You will be able to handle it. And uh, the, But the first step in that is accepting it and being there in that feeling, whatever it is, not trying to suppress it, not trying to tamp it down, not trying to run away from it and avoid it. And it's doing those things causes anxiety, right? Avoiding and suppressing, that causes anxiety. I do want to say, and I'm sure you'll agree, learning to be with whatever comes into your experience takes a lot of practice. Oh, oh, yeah. I I don't want to ever get the impression that for myself, at least, that was an easy, uh, an easy, an easy thing. No, no, no. It was so, so hard for so long. And then and then it got easier. Right. I mean, I think that's I think that I would say I'm still practicing. (laughs) Um, I'm always practicing that. Um, But it's yeah. And and I think that um, 
when you talked about the rules needing to be changed, Abby and I talk about this a lot in our, in our book that um, our culture really uh, puts a premium on putting on a happy face, you know, and, and being happy and um, positivity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Smile and the world will smile with you. You know, that, that, Good place, that yeah. whole, and, and so um, I think sometimes negative emotions, negative experiences are delegitimized and um, frowned upon when really, you know, that is the nature of life is that sometimes experiences are positive. Sometimes they're negative. And there's meaning to be had in, in all experiences. I mean, you know, uh, Cheryl, you and I talked about this a little bit in the beginning before we went on air that, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from our grief, from our anxiety, from our insecurities. Yes. And I, I was just thinking about, um, I spent a lot of time when my wife was sick Hi. with, with uh, Stephen Levine. Um, um, please excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, this is real life, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Kids coming and, home from school. Uh huh. Yes. Um, anyway, he he used to say, um, "Grief is the distance between what you wish was true and what's true." Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are little griefs and big griefs, and you know, <laughs> all across the spectrum. And I've been thinking about that the last several years, uh, living in the U.S. I know yes. there are worldwide listeners, but living in the U.S. with all the things that have gone on, you know, COVID, um, um, fights for racial justice, politics, all of it, that there's, a, there's such a resistance to what's difficult that we re- actually really need to deal with. And, you know, that leads to a sort of general feeling this shouldn't be happening instead yes. of how do we respond to this? And yes. it's it's so painful to watch it unfold. But I think that is deep in our DNA as Americans. You yes. Know, yes. Uh, and, this this negative thing should not be happening. How do we get rid of it? And wow, that 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 just summed up. Um, some of what we've been thinking about, but you put it in such a beautiful way, which is, you know, to think about it in a different way, which is that resistance to where we are because it's not always such a, an easy place to be in as a country, you know. And For sure. In our, in our workshop, we, you know, the overwhelming majority of people that come to our workshops, they're, they, they come in hoping that we'll show them how to stop their anxiety. And the first thing that we do is talk about that for most people, eliminating anxiety from their life is just, it's just not a human thing. I mean, we're all human. We all experience anxiety. And so we, we start with the acceptance piece. And you started your book that way too, which I, which I appreciated because uh, I think I was just talking to a client this morning who her she's pregnant and her she has pretty pretty big anxiety and her healthcare provider was saying something like um, you need to reduce your stress. I can't think of a statement that would make her more anxious than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
and it's, it's the um it's the just relax statement yeah as you know i uh, I, and I was saying, okay, these are the stressors in your life right now, and we're not going to work on reducing them because they are facts. We're going to work on how do you live well with them, <laughs> you know, and big relief, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's just so paradoxical that the acceptance is what relaxes your system some. Yes. Maybe not right away, but, you know, ultimately, Yes. Yes, I, you know, we think that when, you know, when we're in that fight, flight, or freeze response, which is what anxiety is, when we're in that, that response, our prefrontal cortex, which is where the seat of our rationale is, that's where we, you know, where we can um, look at consequences and where our impulse control is, well, that goes out the window during fight, sure. flight, or freeze, right? We have no contact with that part of our brain. It just, the wires go fuzzy. So, yes, and I recently uh, someone uh, shared with me a fourth F, which is fawn. fawn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yes. I resonate with that one some. I have to. Me admit. too. <laughs> I always yeah. say that I, I would go to Approval Seekers Anonymous if that would be okay with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So yes, let's include that fourth F because absolutely that fawning behavior is absolutely part of the sympathetic nervous response. But when we accept something and stop fighting it, stop saying, oh my God, I have to make this stop. I have to make this stop. Then we can first get out of that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And we can go, we can, we can then access our prefrontal cortex, which can tell us, okay, if I do this, this might be a possible consequence, or maybe I can evaluate this. In other words, we can think clearly, we can use the cognitive part of our brains when we're not in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And acceptance is one way of getting there. Right. And one of the most, one of the most helpful ways we found to do this is with that idea of self-compassion that Kristen Neff talks about so much and that we, we talk about quite a lot in our book as well. Because when we can sort of talk to ourselves like we would a dear friend very, very gently, I think that we really start to be able to start to calm ourselves down um, and get out of the fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah, and, and, and people wonder what that sounds like. And I can tell you, this is what it sounds like in my life. It sounds like this. Okay, you're feeling really anxious right now. And that's okay because it's human and everybody feels anxious from time to time and and what you're feeling is okay and it's going to pass it's not going to last forever like any like any sensation or feeling it will eventually pass that's kind of what it sounds like to talk to yourself self-compassionately yes yeah. and i have to say sometimes sometimes uh for myself i have quite a short shorthand around it like one word Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Scared. Oh, yeah. Confused. Oh, you know, and no, that I seems mean, to have the same impact on me. As, it does um, because you're you're acknowledging your emotion in a really gentle way, which I think so much of anxiety for a, for is not knowing the word, not knowing how we're feeling and not being able to acknowledge what we don't know. So everything becomes jumbled. Um, and just being able to say that one word to yourself in such a caring, 
and compassionate way, it really can calm down and get us out of that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn wherever we are. For sure. And also what it does for me, too, is, um, uh, you know, I, I don't see any way through for myself a, a big emotion, a big negative, so un, so-called a ne- negative emotion that doesn't involve feeling it in my body. Right. So right. there's something about naming it that also helps me connect with my body better. Yes. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about um, naming our emotions and how important that is and, and identifying our emotions. But also we, we always say that um, particularly panic is a very somatic experience. And so while we definitely have techniques in our book that are things you could use right away when you're panicked, we also, we also talk a lot about connecting with our bodies, um, doing a lot of things to connect with our body, to connect with other people and nature and animals, because, you know, ultimately, yeah, we, we do all feel our emotions through our body and we need a way to process them and release them in our bodies as much as in our minds. The two aren't really separate. Yeah. We, we include a chapter on Eastern techniques because, Really, they, they know that. Eastern cultures understand that the mind and body, it's not a connection. They are each other. Right. It's all part of the whole. Yes. How, however, I, I, I totally agree with that. And obviously, um, Stephen Levine was all about that. Right? Oh, yes. Um, yeah. But I have noticed that sometimes clients will come and they were actually using meditation practice and all that to get out of their feelings. Mm-hmm. Right. And eventually that goes wrong. Yes. Right. <laughs> so I just want to mention that. <laughs> well, we, yeah. we say like whatever you're feeling, the second that you try to stop it, stop the feeling, which is, you know, what we all at some point try to do because it's very scary to be to have a panic attack or be have intrusive thinking or to be in the middle of a of having a lot of OCD. And so. We all, we all, our natural impulse is like, let me stop this. Right, right, and right. That is kind of what we were talking about with the acceptance. That's almost the, once you start to accept it, it's almost the opposite of what is really helpful. The required first step is the, that acceptance part. Let's take another break and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. And you can go to, uh, listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page to find everything about me. And to find Maggie and Abby, go to anxietysisters.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Maggie Sarachek and Abby Greenberg about their book, Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, How You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected, and Happy. Yay, good promise. (laughs) And I guess, um, you know, we're talking about this concept of acceptance. Um, I think of it often in terms of what makes us feel powerless Uh, you know, I keep circling back over decades and decades to the serenity prayer. What makes us feel powerless is to try Mm -hmm. to control what we can't control. Mm. (laughs) Doesn't it? (laughs) That's, that's a pure recipe. But um, I also was thinking reading your book, I often picture in my mind, literally picture a big carpet bag in front of my client Um, And we're putting things into the bag that hopefully one of them will be right at a given moment. Yes. And and I feel that your book had that quality, you know, and you and you emphasize so regularly. um, If if this doesn't work for you, forget it. Uh, and if this works for you, put it in your bag, basically. <laughs> right. um, we feel that anxiety is, you know, it can be such an intense experience. You really, you don't need a bag of tricks. You need an arsenal. Yes. <laughs> and you need so true. And, and what Mags and I always say is, listen, one size does not fit all. And in fact, one size may not fit the same person two days in a row. So you really need that, that arsenal. You want to have so many choices of things because something that worked really well on Monday might not work on Tuesday. You want to be able to have something else right there. You know, and we, we also know that, that in different parts of your, of your time with anxiety, like what you said, like there are things where your first beginning, um, like I know when I first started really um, working on managing my anxiety, not stopping it, but managing it, whenever anyone told me to do any breathing exercises or meditation, I started to hyperventilate. It, mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for I that. remember that. Absolutely. And um, now it's very helpful for me. It's very, very helpful for me. But it, it took me a long time to get there. So... Um, we kind of say that there, there's also different points in your life where different things are, you're going to find you're ready for different things. And, and different things to different people. I mean, right. I, the idea of, you know, we have so many anxiety sisters that swear by weighted blankets. I have to tell you, that's one of the most terrifying things to me. The idea of being trapped <laughs> under a 12 pound blanket. It just, it's claustrophobia, anybody. 
but it's <laughs> yeah. very it's very very soothing to many people who you know who like to, that feeling of being swaddled. So that one size fits all thing is is a real important comment to to me and Mags because the books that we were reading when we were first experiencing anxiety, they tended to take one particular point of view. And so it sometimes was difficult for us because there were these prescriptions about what you should do. And it was always like, well, what if I can't do that? Or what if that doesn't work for me? And we, so we said, you know, when we write a book about anxiety, we really want to meet everyone where they are. We want to make sure there's plenty for everyone. Also, there's, uh, there is in your book, and I find I do this regularly when I'm working with anxious people, um, I tell them, try this as an experiment and get back to me about whether it works or it doesn't work for you. Right. right. To, to set it up in advance that um, yes. you can't know if it'll work. For instance, I, I have this thing I do um, very often with with anything that's worrying me where I play it out to the very end. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's no longer a problem. Well, a client came back and said, I tried that in the middle of the night and I just kept thinking of all these terrible things that could ensue. Right. It didn't work in the middle of the night. And I said, no, I don't recommend that for the middle of the night, for <laughs> instance, you know, um, but we, we all have to be an N of one in a way. Mm-hmm. What works for you in this moment? And how do you ask the question, what do I need? Yes. Right. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. And part of self-compassion practice, too, is that's sort of the fiercer part of it is to say, what do I need? You know, I now I'm watching grandchildren. When I was raising children, I was maybe too immersed to think about this all the time. But childhood, mm-hmm. childhood is not well made for that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There are so yeah. many occasions, even if you have a beautiful childhood, where right. what you need or what you want or what, what would help you is not the main subject. Right. Don't you think? Right. <laughs> you know, there's schedules and there's uh, all kinds of things yeah. that get us away from that question inside of ourselves. And honestly, I I think I was pretty responsive to my children, but still I couldn't always attend to that. No, no. Sometimes you have to get to work or you have (laughs) exactly they they have to they have things that they need to do. And then when you throw in a child who is has any kind of special needs or is a little bit quirky, um they're, you know, in life, they're, they're sort of, what did they say, a, a, a round peg, <laughs> you know. I had a child that qualifies highly yeah. creative is what I say about that. Yes, yes. But and, it's and hard to manage, isn't it? It is. It's like there's someone who wrote a book said, um, easy to love, difficult to live with. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have a child who um, doesn't fit in to those very sort of scheduled or doesn't fit into the school schedule. And it becomes even more difficult because you really do want to, we want to honor what's best in our children. Um, And then we want to figure out how to help them live in this world. And it's sometimes the two are feel very hard to manage both of them. at Yes, yes, yes. Uh, This particular 
daughter of mine I'm thinking of in fourth grade, we moved schools because of this issue that you and mm-hmm. you and me are talking about. Yeah. And the new teacher, after about a month, we had a parent teach, teacher conference and he said, I'm trying to figure out how to um, guide her behavior in a good direction without killing her spirit. Yes. And we're like, oh, what a relief, you know. Yeah. Isn't that <laughs> it's the, hard, I mean, I, I isn't think, it? Isn't that the, I think, isn't that the challenge for so many of us, even as adults, you know, to, to keep our spirit alive while adulting? And it's not. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's not very easy. She's, by the way, 28 now, and she's she's doing very well. You know, I knew she'd be okay as an adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there, there can be those, that, yeah. can't there? Yeah, there, there. I mean, I think also, you know, we we have so many people who talk about having very anxious children, and um, they need they need space to be able to express themselves because those are often very sensitive children too, and very. Um, caring children and very loving children. But I feel, I feel a- we, I feel we have to refer to this year and a half of living with COVID in that regard. Yeah. I yes. mean, uh, it's a scary time for kids. Yes. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. of, of all ages, and they're they're absorbing their parents' stress and and anxiety. They're. Um, you know, COVID's dangerous, and then they're going back to school. And I mean, it's uh, and there's still all that social media that I, you know, Mags and I always say that you know we we're so grateful that we did not have you know Instagram when we were kids because that would have just I don't know how I would have navigated that. That is a really hard experience to deal with all the social media, the constant being on and being in touch with everyone twenty four seven. I feel like that's a lot of stress for kids. Yeah, in fact, um, the child of mine who was who was the most in that in high school, she wasn't getting enough sleep, and we couldn't figure it out. And it turned out there was some kind of of um, rule that you had to answer a text back. That it was rude if you didn't answer a text back within a minute. Oh God! And yeah. we had to have conversations about how um, really. She needed to set the ground rules with her friends that that just she was going to really get anxious from lack of sleep, you know, yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah. there there are things. And then on the other hand, I have to say, I, I like to put a plug in for maybe there's a little more conversation out there about grief, mental health issues, yeah. you know, all of that. Yes. And and that's actually a good part, right? Yes. <laughs> you can go both directions in yes, my we have, we have an online community of 200,000 people. So we are very grateful to Facebook and Instagram for the good stuff, you know, for being able to get um, to get a conversation going that people can participate in without being afraid because, you know, they have that, that protection of being behind a screen. Yeah. 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 The pandemic has been interesting um, in the anxiety community, just um, in that some of our anxiety sisters who had very bad anxiety before felt like, oh, now everyone else knows what we <laughs> go through. Um, Amen or, to that. Or, um, you know, some people felt like, 
yeah, I'm, I'm sort of okay not having to be out, not having to be out or not having to socialize. Like they, there were, or I'm okay wearing a mask because that helped my social anxiety. So it was sort of interesting to watch that. And, and of course, many, many people um, have so much anxiety from the pandemic and from um, all the, the all the, the fallout yeah, of the, the pandemic too. Yes, and I, all, I all did have thoughts. several people come to see me because their anxiety got so heightened they couldn't yes. ignore it. And yes. they actually made a lot. I'm thinking of a couple of people who actually made so much headway and, and aren't in therapy anymore. You yeah, know, they, no, I, I think that that there was also we talked about loss before. There was also a tremendous amount of loss. Absolutely. I mean, loss of people, loss of lo- uh, lo- loss of livelihood, loss of structure. Um, so I think you know, so many, I don't mean to minimize it in any way, because so many people were dealing with devastating situations. Um, during well, the this, this circles back to what this show is all about, which is that um, loss and suffering are not optional, but um, m- making use of them, that is optional. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we may as well, right? If this stuff is going to happen, we may as well make use of it because otherwise we just feel out of control and helpless and and in pain. And the struggle, like Abby was saying before, you know, the the struggle is also the meaning in so many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how we get to it. You know, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And I I hope people will go to anxietysisters.com because if you want a book that gives you a lot of practical things, but also just helps you accept this experience, it's it's a really good book for that. So thank you both for being here. Oh, thank you for having us. us. Absolutely. Next week, I'll have Martha Callahan, author of A Death Lived. Her book combines her perspective as a physician and as a wife on her husband's final illness and death. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.